0: From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke. And in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. This episode of Blue Sky will be a discussion about well-being and human flourishing with my esteemed guest, Dr. Richard Davidson. Dr. Davidson, who goes by Richie, is the William James and Velas Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds, which has as its mission to cultivate well-being and relieve suffering through a scientific understanding of the mind. He's best known for his groundbreaking work studying emotion and the brain. A friend and confidant of the Dalai Lama, Dr. Davidson is a highly sought after expert and speaker, leading conversations on well being on international stages such as the World Economic Forum, where he serves on the Global Council on Mental Health. Time magazine named Richie Davidson one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2006. In this conversation, we'll cover such topics as the value of small acts of kindness, studying the neuroscience of compassion, the concept of neuroplasticity, the concerning increase of eco-anxiety in our society, and the value of gratitude and appreciation. As you'll hear, Richie Davidson is a brilliant and optimistic scientist, researcher, and teacher who is intensely motivated to contribute to the world's well-being. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richie Davidson as much as I did. Professor Davidson, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here, Bill. It's a privilege to have you on. And I wanted to start with the work you're doing today. You're the founder of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Can you tell us about the nature of the work that you do there? Certainly. I'm a neuroscientist by training. The
1: Center for Healthy Minds was established in late 2009, and it was established in the growing recognition that the work that we were doing was really primarily focused on what we now consider our mission at the center, which is Uh, to cultivate well-being and relieve suffering through the scientific understanding of the mind. In order to do this kind of work, it requires a radical kind of interdisciplinarity, and having a center in which the various disciplines that are most relevant to this pursuit can come together was important in furthering the work, and so that's what led to us establishing the center. And the Dalai Lama came out to Madison in 2010 to inaugurate the center. Uh, And that's really when it began in its formal sort of way.
0: And that was not when your interactions with the Dalai Lama began, though. I, I believe it was 1992 when you first met with him. And he really, as I understand it, took your career and your way of approaching your work in a very different direction. Can you tell us that story?
1: I first met him, as you said, in uh, 1992. And at that time, I uh, was a fairly conventional neuroscientist uh, pursuing research on the brain and emotion, which we still very much do today in many ways. Um, And the Dalai Lama knew that I was interested in meditation. I was a meditator. But I hadn't been doing uh, any serious research on meditation, although was open to it. And he was interested in encouraging modern neuroscientific research on meditation. Um, but I had, at that time, been studying the brain mechanisms associated with vulnerability to stress and anxiety and depression. And he said to me, why can't you use those same tools that you're using to study Anxiety, depression, stress, fear, and use those tools to study kindness and to study compassion. And uh, that was a wake up call for me. Uh, I really did not have a very good answer for him other than that it's hard. Uh, But we made a commitment to the Dalai Lama on that day in 1992 that I was going to do everything I could to put Compassion squarely within the crosshairs of modern science. And if you go back to uh, textbooks of psychology or neuroscience in the 1990s, uh, I very much doubt you would find a single book that has the word compassion in the index. And today it's totally different. Um, today uh, we have uh, hundreds of serious scientific studies that have been published in the mainstream scientific literature. So in that sense, I think it's been wildly successful in catalyzing the development of this new field.
0: And its I find it to be a very interesting story because I don't think it's just neuroscience that has a similar issue. I think as human beings, perhaps, we tend to focus on all that's wrong and maybe try to eradicate it as opposed to... What works well, and can we sort of step on the gas and accelerate that? It, it seems like, and, and it goes back to optimism versus pe- pessimism, I think. Can we focus on all those things that work? I was talking to something someone recently who was talking about all the divisiveness in our world, and he said, you know, when you sit down with someone, start with all the things you share in common, and you'll come up with a really long list. And by the time you've done that, the areas where you disagree will feel like exceptions. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And it it feels like a similar exercise. Totally. And I think if you carefully inspect the granularity
1: of one's everyday life, at least for most people, this is not true for all people, but for most people, uh, there are lots of small acts of kindness, of gratitude, of appreciation. uh, And that is far more common than the... Um, the the negatives that are really the exceptions, but our brains are built to detect surprise, to detect contrast, uh, and uh, when there is a steady state of goodness, uh, it's something that we're a lot less likely to notice, uh, and so there is this hyper focus on the negative because it is indeed the exception. Interesting.
0: And and the negative in in media and culture tends to sell and get attention and that sort of thing. So but so you're describing the brain as being hardwired a certain way, but I also know you're you're a big believer and proponent in and talking about brain plasticity and how the brain can actually change. Can you describe that to folks?
1: This is a really important issue. The brain is built to change in response to experience. Uh, and This is what we call neuroplasticity. There are many different mechanisms of neuroplasticity. They range from uh, cellular and anatomical mechanisms that literally involve changes in brain wiring and in the uh, number of uh, or density of neurons in a particular uh, region uh, to uh, changes in the functional properties of the brain. But the 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 bottom line is that the brain is constantly changing. Uh, it's constantly being shaped by experience. Uh, and one of the things that I often point out is that the very same mechanisms that encode suffering, which is indeed neuroplasticity, because we know, for example, that trauma can impact the brain. Um, it changes the brain. So those same mechanisms can be harnessed for the good. They can be harnessed for cultivating well-being, for flourishing. Uh, And uh, the research shows that cultivating healthy habits of mind uh, through intentional mental exercises actually changes the brain, both functionally and structurally. And it's kind of amazing that that's true, uh, but there's now overwhelming evidence that it is true. Uh, We can say with a great deal of confidence that well-being is best regarded as a skill that can actually be nurtured. And it is because of the mechanism of neuroplasticity.
0: Something I need to confess here is that for the first 20 or so years of my life, my knowledge of the Dalai Lama was pretty much limited to Bill Murray's character's Caddyshack monologue. Big hitter, the Lama. Real long. But I've since come to understand more about His Holiness and the remarkable impact he's had on so many, including Richie Davidson. And I'd suggest the first lesson from today's episode is that if and when the Dalai Lama ever gives you career advice it's probably best to take it. But seriously, what an interesting suggestion the Dalai Lama made to Richie when they met more than 30 years ago. Instead of studying all that goes wrong in the brain, what if you study kindness and compassion? What do these things do to the brain and how can we cultivate and encourage this sort of behavior? And as so many of us wonder why we are so drawn to bad news, negativity, and doom scrolling, Richie Davidson offers an interesting insight here. Our brains are wired to detect difference. So the good news is that positive events and acts of kindness are far more common than the bad stuff. But the bad news is that the latter is what the brain tends to identify and focus on. That's a pretty profound insight and one that can help us understand what we might want to rewire or how at least we want to reframe our outlook and where we place our attention. And since Richie introduced the concept of our being able to train our brains and influence even their physical development, I asked him to talk about what he calls mental exercise. And I know you encourage what I think you've described as mental exercise. There's a quote on your website where you say, I envision a day when mental exercise will be as much a part of our daily lives as physical exercise and personal hygiene, and you said in your TED talk too. I think you know we didn't always brush our teeth as a species, but now everybody does. So, can you give us examples of the kinds of mental exercises you recommend for people who are listening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, there are a few things to say here. Um, uh, initially, one is that it doesn't take much to get these circuits of the mind and the brain going. The second is that you don't need to sit in any special posture, nor do you need to be in any special place. Uh, This can be done anywhere and anytime. The third thing to say is that uh, even really short periods of practice can make a difference, particularly if they are repeated regularly over time. So those are three important principles to, to keep in mind. And one of the things that I often suggest for people who are just beginning this journey is it's, it's really helpful to often piggyback this on uh, some other regular activity of daily living. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I often suggest is one of the things that pretty much every human being has to do is eat we all eat a few times a day. And, um, one of the things that we can do, uh, before, just before we eat is do a little appreciation practice. Um, because, uh, it is, I think, um, uh, uh, safe to say that for virtually everyone on the planet, when they have a meal, it's dependent on many other people. Uh, 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 it may be farmers it may be people who deliver food in a truck it may be people who work in a local local grocery store could well be all of those people uh, There are many many people whose work uh, was required in order to bring food onto one's plate uh, and so just cultivating a sense of appreciation is something that really can be an elixir for the soul because, uh, uh, it, um, first of all, appreciation is a readily available quality that really is, um, uh, so important for our well-being. The second is that it immediately, instantaneously helps us appreciate our, um, interdependence. The fact that we're not alone as isolated islands, but rather our lives are so deeply interconnected and embedded with one another. And um, that we, we know that humans are social animals. Uh, this is really uh, something that is important to recognize and a source of of well-being. So that's an example of a really simple exercise. We can do that for every meal and we can spend just a mo- just a minute before each meal doing that simple kind of appreciation i've been doing that for years personally um for every single meal every day uh it's a way to bring the practice uh to uh to our lives uh in a way that is not it's not a high bar uh and uh it's very easily accessible so that's, that's one example, but there are many, many others. I'll give you one other one, which turned out to be extremely important in, in a particular profession, especially during COVID. We, we've done a lot of work with school teachers who teach in the K through 12 space. And, um, teachers, particularly in, um, in the United States, but also in many other countries were extremely challenged during COVID. Um, Many of them were expected to teach online. Many of them also had their own kids um, who were at home because in many parts of of the country, school was being conducted virtually. One of the things that we learned early on is that for many teachers, they were um, uh, really miserable because uh, they lost their sense of purpose in becoming teachers in the first place. Uh, and so we did practices with them where they spent um even as short as a minute before they started their school day reflecting on their sense of purpose. Why did they become a teacher in the first place? Uh, and it turned out that this was so powerful, and it gave them a sense of vitality and enabled them to more gracefully navigate the adversities that they were facing. Uh, so it, again, it doesn't take much. But it does take regularity. Uh, And so building it into the flow of our daily life, uh, piggybacking it onto some other activity that we routinely do can be very, very helpful. And let me just say one other last thing about this. We have put uh, a whole curriculum that we call the Healthy Minds Program into a mobile app called the Healthy Minds Program. Uh, it's freely available. Uh, uh, you can obtain it wherever you get apps. It's available in both uh, Apple and Android. Um, and uh, uh, the New York Times Wirecutter named it as one of the three best apps of its kind for 2023. Uh, and it's the only app that's totally free of its kind, the only one that is actually evidence-based uh, and um, Uh, And it's produced by this tiny nonprofit that we started uh, a number of years ago. So uh, that's a way to have a guide to help you do these little practices as you go through your day.
0: They're all great examples. And it seems to me, in addition to expressing gratitude, going back to your purpose, if nothing else, too, they simply slow you down. For we get so caught in the rush, and and you mentioned eating. I always use this example, but um, I used to have a commute where I drove by a Dunkin' Donuts every morning, and watching people with one hand on the steering wheel and another on a cruller (laughs) while they were going to work, they're not thinking about driving. They're not really thinking about eating. They're not even probably tasting what they're putting in their mouth. And in addition to their mental well being, it's not good for your physical body either. So. It seems to me that these have multiple benefits.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that your intuition is actually borne out by the scientific literature literature. So much of the time we're really unaware of what we're doing. We're so on automatic. Uh there was a famous study published about 10 years ago by a group of Harvard psychologists. Uh, and what they did is they texted people with their permission multiple times a day, and they asked them three questions. The first question is, what are you doing right now? And they checked off from a list of activities. The second question is, where is your mind right now at this moment? Is it focused on what you're doing or is it focused elsewhere? And the third question they asked is, right at this moment, how happy or unhappy are you? And they used a slider on their phone to indicate. And so what they found in this study, this was done uh, across many different nations with more than 3,000 participants. And what they found is that the average person spends 47% of her or his waking life not paying attention to what they're doing. of the time. And when people reported that they were not paying attention to what they were doing, they were significantly less happy. And it's from these kind of data that we conclude that being distracted is toxic for our well-being.
0: It's interesting to hear Richie Davidson describe distraction as being toxic to our well-being. Let that sink in a bit, and think about how many of our waking hours are spent with our minds distracted, or kidding ourselves that we're multitasking effectively when really we're not doing any of these tasks particularly well, and we may be even doing damage to our brains. As opposed to a toxin, Richie describes appreciation as an elixir. And at the Optimism Institute, we encourage us all to stop and appreciate the many improvements and advances that we as humans continue to create and experience. And back to our brains being designed to detect exceptions, which are often negative, we do well to train ourselves to notice and take time to dwell upon the abundant positives that surround us. The Healthy Minds app that Richie and his team have developed is a great place to start. I've checked it out since this conversation and it really is terrific. And yes, as he says, it has the added virtue being free. Another positive. Now getting back to our conversation, I wanted to ask Richie about his 2019 TED Talk, one that clearly struck a chord as it has garnered more than three million views to date. I started with his four challenges. You outlined four challenges to, to mental flourishing and, and well-being, um, and they were distractibility, loneliness, Negative self-talk and depression, and loss of meaning and purpose, and you, you've you've hit on a couple of these. Distractability, I assume, as a species, we've always been distractible, but but no one can deny that today's society we have just invited in these numerous distractions. And walking down a busy street and looking at how many people are looking at their phone while they walk, bumping into people, it seems like we've we've made that worse on ourselves. Um, loneliness is one. That I just saw the I believe the Surgeon General recently raised loneliness as a public health issue. Can we talk about loneliness? Because it, at the, on the one hand, we should be so connected technologically, we have a thousand friends on Facebook, but but yet we're lonely. Can you talk about why you think that is and and what that does to you uh, in terms of your mental well being?
1: Yeah, this is hugely important, and um, I. I Um, Have had the honor of getting to know the Surgeon General quite well. In fact, he and I have done a few podcasts and other events together. And the health advisory that he just issued, I think, is extremely important. And one of the points that he makes in the health advisory is that loneliness is actually equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of its health impact. Uh, It's more than uh, twice-fold is a risk factor for mortality than is obesity. What these kinds of findings show is that loneliness gets under the skin and really affects our biology in deeply important ways. Now, why is it that we're lonely? That's a a complicated question. And I think that that technology has certainly played an important role uh, despite our apparent uh, uh, interconnectivity. The the sense of authentic human connection, I think, has been eroded, uh, at least in part, uh, by this kind of technology. Uh, This certainly raises lots of red flags for the future generations. Who are um, being raised on these devices, uh, and it suggests to me that one of the things that we really need to do—in fact, I would say it's almost a moral imperative—is uh, that we teach children proper digital hygiene. Um, and and I think you can do that, um, but we haven't been doing it. Uh, these devices are not going to go away, so that's not going to be a solution. Uh, and I don't think. Uh, there's going to be any kind of uh, serious regulation of these devices in children, I think that we need to teach our kids that they don't have to pick up their phone 150 times a day. Um, And, you know, that's actually the average number of times that an American picks up his or her phone, uh, opens their phone 150 times a day. And um, we can teach people, uh, and particularly children, to uh, i think behave with their digital
0: devices in a healthier way and and in thinking about it too technology even more broadly it it does seem to enable us to push back into our homes in other words you, you can instead of going to the store you or you can order from amazon instead of going to work in a workplace and being on a subway with a bunch of other people you can work from home and there's they connect us but they isolate us at the same time which is a tricky dilemma i would think
1: it is and i think that one of the things that people uh, at least in my view have anecdotally been discovering now that we're on the uh, other side of covid is when they do get back in person uh, uh they love it uh it, it clearly is filling a certain kind of need
0: they, they're reminded how juicy it is if you will there was a great moment when uh when when the Top Gun sequel came out, Tom Cruise recorded a special greeting at the beginning, saying, "It's so great to have everybody back in a theater." And before the movie even started, there was a celebratory feeling in the theater that was pretty cool. I mean, you almost forgot how, what we had lost.
1: Yeah, exactly. Until you we're
0: back. Exactly. It was amazing negative self talk and depression why why are we so prone to negative self talk is that something that's hardwired is that something we 've learned a little bit of both well I think what's
1: hardwired is that we have uh, a narrative in our minds about ourselves and uh, that serves a useful function uh, it, it clearly uh, is something that's necessary for um, accomplishing the uh, the tasks of daily living, um, where it gets us into trouble is when uh, we perseverate over that narrative and when we become uh, sort of fused with that narrative rather than being able to see the narrative for what it is. So what's really important for well-being, even if it's you have a very negative narrative, is not really initially changing the narrative. What's really important for well being is changing our relationship to the narrative so that we can see the narrative for what it is, which is a set of beliefs and expectations about ourselves. And it's normal for a human mind to create beliefs and expectations. But when we can have a little bit of distance and see them as beliefs and expectations, most of us don't see them that way. Most of us are so fused. With the identities that we've created for ourselves, that um, it's it's not they're not aware of it. Uh, they're not aware of how their beliefs and expectations are actually filtering how they perceive the world. And if we become more aware of it, more curious about it, uh, and one way you know, one simple way to be curious about it, this is another simple exercise. Um, imagine if you had an entirely different set of beliefs and expectations about yourself, how you might respond to a challenging situation you currently find yourself in. Just try on a different set of beliefs and expectations about yourself. Uh, and um, Simply in the act of going through that kind of simulation, a person can recognize that, wow, uh, it's true that the beliefs and expectations I have of myself really do filter how I view the world. And if I um, if I can see them in that way, there's less of a grip. I'm less hijacked by them. That's something that's super important. And uh, for someone who is prone to depression, not only do they have negative beliefs and expectations, but they're totally fused with them. Um, so that they don't see them as beliefs and expectations. They just see them as, as who they are. Um, and, you know, when, when we use the, the kind of language that we commonly use um, is uh, curious, and you, we can begin there. So we, um, we often might say uh, a sentence like, I am sad. Um, well, what does it mean to say that? What, does it mean all of me is sad? Literally every cell in me. Um, uh, is there any? Is there any teeny part of me which is not sad? Um, and once you start asking yourself that kind of question, the whole idea of this kind of um, of global self uh, and um, begins to become a lot more permeable uh, and a lot less fixed.
0: It, I, I love hearing you talk about this because as I've worked on this optimism work, you know a lot of people say, "Well, I'm a born pessimist. I'm a born optimist, or you, the glass half full or half empty." It's like, well, wait a second; these things can be learned and worked on. They they truly can. And I and you're talking about some different areas, but it's it's similar. Yeah, no, it's very similar. So, I mean, when we say I'm a pessimist, it's like what, all of us are pessimists. The emerging science around the study of loneliness and its impacts is really eye-opening. To consider that being lonely is worse for you than obesity and the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day is striking. I do think it's important to stop and think about the impacts of technology here, as we tend to consider social media bringing people together, and in ways it certainly does, but it can also ironically isolate us. One way we might think about pushing back against some of this is to consider the words that Kevin Kelly shares in his new book that we do well to, quote, cultivate 12 people who love you because they are worth more than 12 million people who like you, unquote. I next wanted to ask Richie about the dangers of losing meaning and purpose in our lives and if people today are having a uniquely difficult struggle with this. Are we in an unusually bad situation moment in time for this? Or has it always been a significant issue? Because one of the things I wonder about is the, you know, a lot of people have lost faith in institutions, in their leaders, in their faith community, you know, things that for years maybe gave us right or wrong, gave us some meaning or purpose. A lot of those things feel like they've lost, uh, prominence in our lives. Is that part of it? Is this a a relatively newer issue or how would you describe that?
1: Yeah, I I definitely think that's part of it. I think the political polarization that we're facing, uh, the decrease in trust in kind of major institutions in our culture have played a role. Uh, I also think um, one of the things we haven't named that I think also contributes to this is um, climate change and the kind of existential anxiety, uh, particularly among younger, the younger generation, that is caused by, um, you know, this sense that we're, we're all doomed and there's really nothing we can do about it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, th- there's actually now a term for this uh, that we call eco-anxiety.
0: Uh, and and it's a real thing. Uh and it could be debilitating, and the debilitating part is what really concerns me. And I, I interviewed a woman from the Harvard uh, Chan School of Public Health who writes the Climate Optimist newsletter, and and her point is, you know, obviously this is a huge issue, and they're very concerned about it. There, but if you get to the point of such anxiety that it's that you you're not motivated to do anything about it, that puts us in a really bad place. But if you can maintain a sense of hope and optimism that there are things we can actually do about this, then you're in a different place. And one of the reasons I got into this work is I have have kids who are in their 20s and they have friends who, because of eco-anxiety, probably more than just about anything else, they don't want to have children of their own because they think that bringing children into this world is unfair to them because we may only have so many years left and that... And it seems to me we are, we might be hardwired to be cautious about our surroundings, but we're also presumably hardwired to procreate. (laughs) And so so if you get to the point where you're so concerned about an issue like climate change that you are not going to have kids, and there are plenty of fine reasons not to have kids, but if that's the reason alone, then that's a big concern, it seems to me. Yeah, no, I share your concern.
1: uh, And I think that it's really... uh very significant. And these folks who are often the ones who have very high levels of eco anxiety are people who otherwise might be very effective social change agents, but uh, their capacity to engage in social change is dramatically compromised because of their eco anxiety. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things I often say sometimes. You know, people will criticize the kind of work we do because they say, well, you know, you're trying to cultivate well being among people who are living in a system which is just falling apart and corrupt. And, you know, we need to change the system. And my response to that always is we need to work on both. It's not either or. Uh, And in fact, if you don't um, take care of yourself, if you don't flourish, you really won't have the vitality to be an effective social change agent. Uh, If you look at the great leaders of social change movements, they have spent a lot of time uh, often doing contemplative practice to really help their own vitality. People like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, um, Mahatma Gandhi, all of those people uh, have done systematic practice to nourish their soul. Uh, in order to enable them to be effective social change agents
0: and i think too what you consume and what you put in your your brain um, has such an impact i mean you can you can focus on all that's wrong in climate or you can focus on the rise in electro electric vehicles and the inflation reduction act and for the first time we actually passed legislation that are moving us in this direction and i i try to remind younger people of just just the things that have happened socially in my lifetime or even the second half of my lifetime, same-sex marriage, uh, you know, end of apartheid, end of the cold war, the Berlin wall. I mean, all these things that as time moves on, we tend to take for granted. It's been described that bad news happens really quickly <laughs> and and good things take time to step back and appreciate. And I think we are back to where we started. We are so inclined to focus on all that's wrong that we don't take a healthy break and and try to focus on what's right and what we could make even better.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
0: Richie Davidson says some concerning things here about the pervasiveness of what he describes as eco-anxiety. While these feelings are understandable, given the state of our world, they're not particularly helpful. For more on this, If you haven't listened to it already, I suggest you check out our Blue Sky episode number two with Marcy Frank. She's the writer of the Climate Optimist Newsletter for the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And she'd agree with Richie that we really need to work on ourselves to realize that, yes, climate change is real and it's serious. But if we give in to feelings of doom and anxiety about it, we're less likely to make an effective impact against it. Related, I was struck by what Richie said about working on yourself before you can effectively work on societal change. It's kind of like putting on the airplane oxygen mask on yourself before assisting others. And think about those examples of Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, and Gandhi. These are people who did just this. Speaking of nurturing our own mental health, I asked Richie Davidson to talk about the subject of mindfulness, what it is, and what his thoughts are about the practice.
1: Mindfulness is really important, um, but it is one of several key ingredients, and so I would not say it's the most important. Um, uh, And we've uh, become, uh, I think, a little too hyper-focused on mindfulness per se. We prefer to talk about well-being and flourishing, of which mindfulness is one uh, uh, of several key ingredients. Uh, the second thing is is that in our framework for understanding well being, we actually don't use the word mindfulness. Uh, we prefer the the term awareness because um, awareness is something that um, I think most people understand. We all have awareness. Um, awareness is a basic human capacity. Mindfulness has a lot of surplus meaning in the way it has been used uh, in, in the psychological literature as well as in the popular media. Um, but having said all that, you know we can certainly use it here. And the way it is typically defined is um, uh, as a present moment awareness, uh, where uh, you are fully present in the moment uh, without distraction and without judgment. That's the way it's, it's typically defined. But in the classical, it actually has a slightly different meaning. Um, and uh, the slightly different meaning has a connotation of remembering. So when you're mindful, you're remembering. Now, what is it that you're remembering? Well, what you're remembering is to bring a certain view or a certain sensibility to every nook and cranny of your life. And what is that view or that sensibility? It's the kind of things that the Dalai Lama talks about, the, uh, the notion that every human being has basic goodness, no matter what. So even, you know, uh, even human beings that have done terrible things, they still have basic goodness. Um, they're still human beings. So they might have been, they might have done reprehensible acts, For which we have moral outrage, Uh, but they're they're human beings, and they they deserve to be respected as human beings. And remembering to have that view every time we interact with a person um, is something that can be dramatic in helping to uh, reduce polarization uh, and the other kinds of barriers that we have in human communication. Uh, that's typically not the way mindfulness is thought about, in, um, in, which is, again, one of the reasons why we um, don't like to use that word. But it's, it's really important, and we know that these qualities of awareness can be, can be trained. Um, in fact, there's much more scientific literature on mindfulness or awareness practices than there are on any of the other pillars of well-being that we described, there are literally thousands of studies. Uh, One of the elements of mindfulness is being able to regulate our attention so that we're not constantly being hijacked by stimuli and events around us, that we can be the masters of our own mind. Uh, And another element of mindfulness that is really important is something that psychologists and neuroscientists call meta-awareness. And meta-awareness is the capacity to know what our minds are doing. Right. And, you know, um, that may seem a little strange to some listeners, but um, but there are many, I think, everyday examples of us not knowing what our minds are doing. One of the examples I frequently um, use is uh, I think the common experience of reading a book where we might be reading each word on a page, and we read one page, a second page, and after a few minutes, we recognize that we have no idea what we've just read. Our mind is somewhere else. It's lost. Um, and that's an example of not knowing what our mind is doing, but the moment we recognize it is a moment of meta-awareness. And it turns out that that can be trained.
0: Well, and what I think is interesting about some of this awareness and particularly attentiveness are the ripple effects it can have on other people. And specifically. Now, we can study someone like Dalai Lama. I will never be like the Dalai Lama, but there's a lot I can learn from him. And I've heard several people, maybe yourself included, describe meeting him and feeling like you are the only person in the room and the only person at that moment who matters to him. And that makes you feel great. Whereas today, and I, I go to restaurants and I look around and people are on a date and they're both on their phones. Or when you're talking to someone and as they're talking, they're looking to see who else is coming in. It makes you feel awful. And so the more we can do this for ourselves, it seems like there are ripple effects for everyone with whom we interact. Is that a fair way to describe it? Absolutely. I completely
1: agree 100%. And I think that, that sense of presence is so extraordinarily important. And what's so remarkable about the Dalai Lama is that he does that with everyone. So you can be, you know, um, King Charles, or you can be a janitor, and it doesn't matter. Um, it's all the
0: same. Amazing. Um, it was. I, I believe I read when in academic circles, some people get uncomfortable when um, their interactions with people who are considered to be spiritual—that that you're mixing science and religion and spirituality. Can you talk about the role of spirituality and all these things that you've described, purpose, uh, attentiveness, connection? Is there a role? Is it positive? I know that there's, you know, people have pros and cons about established religions, but spirituality of some sort, is that a helpful thing in your work or how would you describe it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot depends on how we define spirituality. But one of the ways that I think about it is that spirituality – is something that is part of what it means to be human, and it is a quality of uh, connecting to something larger than ourselves. Uh, And it could be named many different things, but this sense of connecting to something larger than ourselves, it often will be associated with a quality like awe And uh, I think that that is simply part of the basic human repertoire. And so what I would say is, yes, I do think that uh, these are strategies that we're talking about that can help a person to connect to his or her own innate spirituality, because that is part of what it means to be a human being. Um, And some people are very connected to that part of themselves. Other people are very unconnected. Um, and I do think that it is healthy to be connected because I think that this contributes to our well being because it gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and also a sense of connection.
0: So, if someone's listening today and hopefully is inspired by some of the things you've said, could you say the name of your app again, and then other things you would encourage people to when they when they're done listening to our conversation that they can immediately or soon start working on these things that you've described as being so helpful? What give us some some guidance?
1: Yes. So I appreciate the question. Uh, the the app is called the Healthy Minds Program, uh, and it is available wherever you get apps, and it's totally free. Um, And what I would encourage people to do is to make a uh, a commitment. Uh, We often do this in the form of a thirty day challenge. For the next thirty days, at every pick one meal a day, say lunch or whichever you always have. Some people miss meals sometimes, so whichever is your most regular meal, at that meal every single day, I'm going to spend at least one minute before I eat. Um doing this simple appreciation exercise where I bring into my mind and my heart um people, whether I know them or not, who I know have been involved with getting food to me on the table. Just do that for one minute a day um, and see how you're doing see see if it's beneficial uh, and if it is, you can extend the duration of time you can. Uh, also, uh, do it at other times during the day, uh, and begin slowly by slowly, step by step to build a habit and develop a skill.
0: And, and I can tell from the way you're describing this, that you pretty much know it will be helpful. (laughs) And I think that's one of the great things about your work and, and about being an optimist and, and knowing that people are struggling with these things, but we do have ways to help. We do. We do. And, and, you know, it's a
1: very different approach than treating illness or treating symptoms. It really is an approach which basically says, let's start with your strengths. Um, Let's start. uh, And and it, it turns out that that's, that really works.
0: Um, It's really effective. And to wrap up, when I see you today, folks won't be able to see you on the podcast. And when I've seen photographs and seen video. More often than not, you have a smile on your face. Would you describe? Were you back to "Born This Way"? Change whatever. Were you always that way? And did the did the pivot that Dalai Lama encourage you to make towards working on that? Did that influence any of it in your outlook? How would you describe that evolution? Uh, I would definitely describe it as an evolution. I was not this way all the
1: time. I uh, in the early part of my career, I. Um, was prone to anger and, you know, really um, was quite volatile at work. Uh, you know, I don't that, – that's not true at all anymore. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that's important to say is that, you know, I've been at this for a while uh, and it's, it's gradual. So um, we have to be patient uh, and, um, uh, you know, often – Uh, a person's mind has been going in a particular direction for many years. It's like a river that's been flowing in a certain direction. And if we're going to make change, we can't expect it to be dramatic change all of a sudden. That typically doesn't happen. And so we need to just be patient with it. And step by step, I think it is possible for every human being to, to increase their well-being, and uh, to uh, improve their ability to flourish. I think it is in everyone's reach.
0: Well, on that optimistic note, Professor Davidson, I want to thank you for your time, for the incredible work you're doing, for the impact you're having on the world. And uh, I really appreciate you spending this hour with us. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy and honored to spend it with you. And I
1: want to thank you for all you're doing to promote optimism uh, on the planet. We know that optimism is actually really beneficial and healthy.
0: Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Richie makes an interesting distinction between mindfulness and awareness. And his 30-day appreciation challenge sounds like a great way to start working on the awareness part. And so, of course, is the Healthy Minds app. And I really appreciate his saying, let's start with your strengths. So often when we work on self-improvement, it begins with a focus on all that's wrong with us. But there is something uplifting, and dare I say, optimistic, in the way Richie describes this different kind of approach. And he ends by assuring us with his belief that it is possible for everyone to improve their well-being and ability to flourish. And ever since his first encounter with the Dalai Lama, Richie Davidson has spent his career trying to help advance our understanding of how to do just that. I really enjoyed my blue sky conversation with Professor Davidson. And I hope you did too. Before you go, if you haven't already, please consider leaving us a rating or review. And to be sure you don't miss any future episodes of Blue Sky, you might want to follow the series on your favorite podcast app. And for more uplifting and thought-provoking content, check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky and founder of the Optimism Institute, Bill Burke, and encouraged by Richie Davidson, I'd like to express my appreciation to all of you for listening.